millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Next week is UN General Assembly Week. This year's event inevitably overshadowed by the Ukraine war and skyrocketing food and fuel prices. We're going to look at what we should expect from those debates. We're also going to talk about the UN's role in other less prominent but still important crises. And as world leaders gather in New York, we're going to ask about the general health of the world body. But before that... Tonight, Ukraine is on the offensive and quickly gaining ground, reclaiming the largest swath of Russian-controlled territory since April, when forces pushed the Russians out of the outskirts of Kyiv. President Zelensky saying Ukraine has liberated at least 30 settlements and reclaimed nearly 1,000 square miles of land around Kharkiv, the country's second-largest city, including taking back the town of Izum, a strategically important railway hub, which was seized by Russian forces in the spring after a week-long battle. Neighbors hugging and thanking Ukrainian soldiers. Soviet-era flags are coming down as Ukrainian flags are being raised. Ukraine. Ukraine. Dear Ukrainians, on September 10th, I congratulated to our cities beautiful, strong cities on their day, Liman and Dnipro. Liman in Donetsk region is still waiting for our flag. And this is inevitable. Ukraine always returns. Over the past few days, Ukraine has recaptured Kharkiv region in the country's northeast. Russian forces that had been occupying the region appeared to collapse. That was Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky applauding Ukrainian forces for the offensive. So dramatic developments. And before we move to New York and the General Assembly, we're going to catch up briefly with Crisis Group's Europe Central Asia Director, Oli Olika, on what happened in Ukraine, how much of a turning point the Kharkiv counteroffensive is, and what might come next. Olya, welcome back on. Thank you for having me again. So, Olya, to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's happened over the last few days? I mean, what should we make of the, of the offensive? 
So I'll actually go back a little bit further in the last few days because it's been exciting times um, since late August when we first started seeing um, some Ukrainian movement in the south um, around Herson to retake small amounts of territory and some successes in doing that um, late August and early September. And then we started seeing movement uh, in the north um, near Kharkiv. So Herson was in Russian, Russian-controlled, Kharkiv, Ukrainian-controlled, but kind of the broader regions. Um, and um, what has happened most recently is the Ukrainians have retaken all of Kharkiv region. Uh, in Kherson, they've stopped um, short of actually the city of Kherson, but they've pushed the Russians back a good bit. And they're starting to make some gains in other areas, or they were. Right now, it looks like the Ukrainians are trying to consolidate control on the territory they've taken rather than keep pushing, um, you know, as we speak on the 15th of September. But it really, you know, we've been, we'd been wondering for quite some time, can the Ukrainians mount a successful counteroffensive? And the answer quite clearly appears to be, yes, they can. So you have some folks saying that this changes everything. It's changed the course of the war. It is crucial. It is very important. It is a lot of territory. But the Russians also continue to hold a lot of territory, including that strip of land uh, that connects Crimea to Russia. And, you know, it's not over yet. Uh, but what we saw looked in many ways like um, what we saw in central and northern Ukraine back in uh, February, late February, early March, when Russian forces just melted away. And that's, you know, that tells you something. And uh, Olio, as you say, so Russia still holding much of the south, including, importantly, the land connecting Crimea to Donbass uh, in the east. Donbass, it, it still controls as well. But Kharkiv oblast or region, I mean, this area that Ukraine has recaptured, it's a big chunk of territory in the northeast bordering Russia itself and also next to Luhansk, which is which is part of Donbass. Right. So, yes, they've recaptured a big chunk of the territory that they had lost in earlier fighting. And that's important. That's huge. Uh, it's uh, Izum, which you may remember was very hard fought the first time around, is back in Ukrainian hands. And some people say that maybe this Ukrainian buildup in the south, or the talk of an offensive in Kherson was was sort of a feint, a way to get Russia to redeploy more battle-hardened troops to the south to defend against this sort of expected Ukrainian offensive there before the Ukrainians then advanced also in Kharkiv. I mean, what do you make of that idea? So we're hearing some reporting that that was indeed the plan. If it was the plan, it was very close hold, including, you know, people who were very close to the Ukrainian government were not aware that that was the plan. Look, I think the approach is to push forward where you think there's space to push forward. And if they did get the Russians to redeploy substantial forces to the south and leave the north open, that's uh, it's a pretty impressive coup. I don't know how many times they can pull it off again, but I would also point out that given the Russians' difficulty mustering sufficient personnel in general and how quickly their forces have fallen apart in Kharkiv Oblast, um, maybe that's not that big a deal. I mean, again, it's... Uh, it's always tempting to draw your conclusions from whatever just happened. Uh, and there's, uh, you know, this war is not over yet, but it's a pretty impressive and impressively implemented operation or set of operations.
And we'll talk about President Putin's, the Kremlin's options in a moment. But Ukrainian forces, as you say, now digging into sort of retrenching in areas that they've recaptured. I assume their next move would be, what, an advance into Luhansk in Donbass or to try to capture back some of the south? Or is that still not clear? So we've seen a lot of speculation on what is better defended, what is worse defended, and where the Ukrainians should go next. I think from the Ukrainian perspective, they want to make sure that they are firmly in control of territory that they've regained. Um, in fact, the Russians have made very small gains in parts of Donbass uh, during the, uh, this period, too, though you know, they're not particularly notable. I think for the Ukrainians, it's about making sure they can hold what they've recaptured before pushing too hard anywhere else. That said, I think if they see an opportunity, they'll probably take it. Um, and that does seem to be more likely to be in the north than in the south, where the Russians are kind of better entrenched. But, um, you know, it's all very speculative. Uh, and I would say the other thing that's interesting about this is the Russians... Yes, they've responded with some force in Donetsk and so forth, but what they've done a lot of is hitting targets, uh, power grid targets, civilian targets, knocking out energy, which strike me as a sign of weakness, right? It strike, this strikes me as a sign that, you know, we could not defend the territory we had captured and we are continuing to try to break the Ukrainian will. But since that has failed, pretty substantially up until now, it seems unlikely to suddenly start working, especially right after the Ukrainians have scored a real military victory. And um, as you said earlier, there were these big questions about whether Ukraine could mount a serious counteroffensive, capture back territory from the Russians. And the answer, you know, notwithstanding all the uncertainty about what comes next, the answer to that is clearly yes. But the collapse of Russia's forces arguably says even more about um, about them. I mean, that's got to be pretty troubling for the for the Kremlin. What are Russia's options now? I mean, from what I understand, there's a pretty big manpower problem. Putin has been reluctant to do a full mobilization in Russia. I imagine that's quite difficult to start up now. So what are his options? Yeah, so I think that's exactly right. We have seen in some ways, an echo of what we saw in February and March, which is Russian forces revealed to be hollow. And the thinking at that time when they regrouped and started focusing on capturing territory in the east that, okay, well, this this is the plan that makes sense. And this is the plan that the Russian military can carry out. This is what they probably should have done in the first place if they wanted a military victory. So now they're doing that. But it turns out that the Ukrainians are able, with the assistance of Western weapons, to push back against that. And, you know, the Ukrainians spent a lot of time laying the groundwork for this, um, hitting Russian logistics, hitting Russian supply line targets. Uh, so they were softening up uh, the Russians for a pretty, you know, for a pretty long time before they mounted this. So, you know, again, smart and patient, but it looks terrible from the perspective of the Russian armed forces. And it's a little difficult to imagine what do they do next? Uh, do they, you know, do they mobilize the population? Okay, but you've got to train people if you mobilize them. And if you're having trouble training regular army, what on earth makes you think you're going to do a better job training a bunch of people who had no intention of, of serving and no expectation of serving. I think they're very nervous about just how popular or unpopular uh, mobilization would be, which is why they've held off on doing anything of the sort up until now. Um, they, you know, they can try to look for Ukrainian weakness. They can 
you know, they could withdraw and sue for peace and try to make a deal, but that does not seem to be what they are at least saying they're going to do at present. It also seems quite hard to imagine, right, given sort of everything that's happened so far, that Russia completely withdraws, licks its wounds, leaves Ukraine alone. Plus, conversely, why would Zelensky, after this offensive, with the wind in, in Ukraine sails now offer much to Russia, even if you could get to talks? I mean, it certainly seems that Russia's wider goals in Ukraine sort of seem long gone. Well, since what Russia initially hoped for was a vassal state in Ukraine, I think it's I think it lost that one in February and March. The I think the Russians have been fighting um, with the idea that they're going to gain more territory and still either convince the Ukrainians to give up even more and to recognize Russian supremacy um, or to kind of get a divided Ukraine. But that's not what they're you know, they weren't saying we were fighting for a divided Ukraine. They've been saying that we're fighting for you know, Ukraine that um, does what we, t- what we tell them. Uh, if it happens to be divided, you know, that's a, a side effect of the process. But that's not in and of itself the goal. The goal is a compliant Ukraine. They are not going to get a compliant Ukraine uh, absent the Ukrainian military collapsing for some as yet unfathomable reason. So you would think this would lead them to reconsider their war aims and their political aims. But thus far, that is not what they say they are doing. And these uh, reports of a sort of change of tone in media commentary in Russia, I mean, is that overstated? What, what should we make of those? Yeah, what we've seen is some criticism, you know, kind of how do we get into this mess? Um, it's not criticism of Putin, right? But that clearly mistakes were made. Whose fault is it? It's not the president's fault, but it's got to be somebody's fault that uh, we're, we're doing so poorly. And most of the criticism is from the right. It's sort of usually more hawkish. It's coming from people who want to win the war and don't like the fact that they're not winning the war, not people who oppose the war and... You know, in that case, the argument would be, why don't you leave? But those people do not get to be on television because if you say that you oppose the war and Russia shouldn't be there, you could be put in prison for a number of years. So people generally, if even if they think this, they don't say it publicly. And Olya, what about the danger that Russia lashes out in another way? I mean, we've talked a lot in the previous season of, of the podcast about the risks of nuclear escalation, for example, though, you know, admittedly, it's hard to see what Russia would gain through a nuclear strike. Right. Well, exactly. I mean, what are they going to nuke, right? What exactly do you use a nuclear weapon to accomplish? The purpose, okay, the purpose is to convince the Ukrainians that this is hopeless and the Russians are going to keep going till the very end. But if they launch a nuclear weapon at uh, Ukrainian territory, they're going to get global anger they risk even more of a Western response. Um, and, you know, there's been enough signaling from the West to suggest that not not a nuclear response, but definitely more a Western response. Uh, and the Russians, like NATO, have actually been very careful to avoid anything that that reeks of direct war. So that's what they, they risk that direct war, they risk the nuclear war that they would be trying to deter by using a nuclear weapon, if you want to get your brain wrapped around all of that. And also the winds are going to bro- blow radioactive at material into Russia. Um, so none of this seems like a really good idea. Uh, I think the risk of nuclear use goes up when the Russian government when the Kremlin feels that 
it, there is a risk to them and their leadership, or there is a risk to Russia, its stability, its existence as a sovereign state. I think at that point, you do have a real risk of nuclear use. I don't think we're there yet. You know, nobody, nobody is talking about invading Russia. Nobody is talking about NATO troops going into Russia. If, and if anything, a nuclear use would make that more likely. The counter argument to that, of course, is that we've seen Russia do foolhardy things before, like uh, invading Ukraine along multiple axes uh, on February 24th. But then you could lay out an argument of what they were trying to do and what assumptions they were making. And I can't come up with one of those for nuclear use right now. So for that reason, I'm not as worried. And Oli, Ukraine's counteroffensive obviously owes to you know, Ukrainians' willingness to fight under President Zelensky's leadership, but it's also clearly thanks to the, but its success also owes to the supply of Western weapons, uh, particularly these new weapons they've got from the US. Now, before the offensive over this winter with energy shortages, price hikes, especially in Europe, that opposition to the degree of support that Western countries were giving Ukraine that the war oppositions to its cost might uh, might grow, especially again in, in Europe. But I assume that the successful Ukrainian offensive now keeps some of that sentiment at bay. I think absolutely. Look, we've seen pretty good um, support for Ukraine uh, in the West, right? Ukrainian flags flying around everywhere. The public opinion polling suggests people are willing to even pay some costs uh to keep supporting Ukraine. Politicians also seem confident of their ability to mitigate some of the, um, you know, some of the uh, impact of increasing energy prices, etc. Yeah, I think this helps. Um, this makes it easier to make the case that this is a, a winning proposition. So I imagine that that was part of the logic in pushing this forward, too, that, uh, you know, the, I think the Ukrainians realized that they needed to launch a counteroffensive sooner rather than later, because they were concerned about maintaining support. And by successfully retaking big chunks of territory, uh, the Ukrainians um, have, uh, have demonstrated that it's, uh, it's worth continuing to support them. So one other thing I wanted to ask you about Ukraine, before we move to Nagorno-Karabakh. So Putin is now at the summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Now, Russian state TV reported that he'd said to Chinese leader Xi Jinping that, and I'm quoting, we highly value the balanced position of our Chinese friends when it comes to the Ukraine crisis, but that he understands Chinese concerns and questions. I think maybe that's President Putin's first sort of public acknowledgement that Beijing may be looking at what's happening in Ukraine with some trepidation. I mean, what do you make of the fact that Putin appears to have sort of openly acknowledged this? So the Chinese never were all that thrilled about uh, Russia's decision to launch an all-out war against Ukraine. Um, they do believe in sovereignty, right? And should somebody raise the question of Taiwan, they think Taiwan is part of China. So that's not a sovereignty, or that's a Chinese sovereignty issue from their perspective. So they were not happy about the Russian decision to launch this war. They also did not break with Russia over it for a whole lot of geostrategic reasons. Um, 
and they've maintained relations with Russia. I don't think Putin was unaware of Chinese concerns over the course of the last uh, six plus months. I think he was very well aware of them. Um, I don't know what it means that he said something about it. Um, full stop. I don't know what this means. There's been this desire, especially among Western states, that maybe the Chinese will come and talk sense to the Russians. And the Chinese have shown absolutely no interest in doing that in the way that Western countries um, seem to want them to. And, you know, the obvious question is, wait, so you want them to tell the Russians to stop tying up the West and there were weapons in their attention so the West can focus on containing China? I mean, why would China want to do that? Uh, so, you know, there are reasons for China to want this war to end. It is destabilizing in a broad sense. But we've seen no evidence that Beijing is going to put a tremendous amount of pressure on Moscow uh, to do this. Um, that may change. I'm not a sinologist, uh, so I don't really understand the calculations uh, going on in, in China, but that's what we've seen so far. So, Walia, just taking advantage of having you on the podcast, we're going to talk very briefly about the flare-up last week in Nagorno-Karabakh or around in the South Caucasus. So last week, clashes between Azerbaijani and Armenian forces along their border. It's the worst violence since the 2020 war. People probably remember that war saw Azerbaijani forces recapture parts of Nagorno-Karabakh and surrounding areas that it had lost to Armenian forces in the 1990s. Russia broke a ceasefire then between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Moscow then deployed Russian peacekeepers to monitor the ceasefire, basically deterring another Azerbaijani offensive. So, Oli, what should we make of this latest bout of violence? I mean, is it a warning sign of a looming Azerbaijani attempt to take back the rest of Nagorno-Karabakh? Or is it more about squeezing Armenia to give Azerbaijan more in negotiations that are sort of semi-ongoing between the two countries? You know, it's really, um, it's really hard to know. Uh, there's a lot of speculation out there. And yes, Azerbaijan wants Armenia to sign a treaty, sign a deal that recognizes uh, that Nagorno-Karabakh is just a regular old part of Azerbaijan. Um, and they also want... Um, Want the transport corridor that will connect Azerbaijan with the exclave of Nahichevan um, on the other side of uh, of Armenia. I don't know that shelling across the border is necessarily the best way to do it, but we'll see. You know, we'll see what it what it does. We'll see if it leads to more talks. Um, we'll see what other parties do. Uh, you know, our, uh, Armenia has called for CSTO support, and apparently, it's going to get something. Uh, well, at least to monitoring or an observation mission. Russia, you know, one of the things it shows is Russia's limited capacity to prevent things like this. And, you know, that that raises an interesting question insofar as the Western goal in supporting Ukraine is uh, to, of course, guarantee Ukraine's future sovereignty, but also to weaken Russia. Is a weak Russia or Russia revealed to be weak, right? Because it's not that Ukraine has made Russia unable to do something uh, between Azerbaijan and Armenia. It's that Ukraine has sort of ripped off the uh, the gauze that covered up uh, Russian weakness. Is this going to, in the end, be destabilizing because there's 
no Russian capacity to keep a lid on things, and everybody knows that. We talked a little bit about this, uh, people might remember, last season, but Azerbaijan clearly now militarily much stronger than, than, than Armenia. I mean, just in pure military terms, were it to go into Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, you know, I assume it could take back areas still held by Armenian forces. And what's preventing that, partly international opprobrium, of course, but also the Russian peacekeepers. Now, 2,000 Russian peacekeepers aren't going to stop a, an Azerbaijani offensive militarily, but you know, Baku uh, unlikely to want to anger Russia. And yet, maybe now with Russia not only distracted, but seemingly losing in Ukraine, you know, that deterrence is, is less credible. Plus, there's increased Western demand for Azerbaijani oil, given the energy crisis um, sparked by Ukraine. Plus, of course, the Turkish support that uh, Azerbaijan has, has enjoyed for, for some time. So maybe Azerbaijan is feeling a bit more confident than it was some months ago. Again, thanks to the knock-on effects of the, of the, of the Ukraine war. Yeah, so I think I think all of that is very plausible that uh, Baku is feeling um, like it has some space to maneuver. Uh, I don't think they want to kill Russian peacekeepers, right? I don't think they want to actually take those risks. But evidently, they are more willing to test the waters. And yes, Western states coming to them and um, taking pictures uh, after signing energy deals also kind of helps their case. You know, what, what are they going to do to us, right? Uh, how are they, who's going to push back on this? This past spring, uh, a smaller escalation did help relaunch talks, right? It kind of helped force the Armenians to think that, okay, we've got to, we've got to strike some deals. Does this make the Armenians believe that they actually have no negotiating leverage at all and uh, they should let the Azerbaijanis impose their uh, conditions on them. I mean, I, I don't think that's a very comfortable position for them. If what you have is a deal that is fully imposed by Azerbaijan that makes no concessions whatsoever to Armenia and its interests, it's going to be somewhat fragile. It's going to create incentives for Armenia to try to relitigate things in the future and find ways to do that. Uh, so they'd all be better off, uh, I would argue, with a deal that uh, recognizes Armenia's needs and interests as well. Armenia's interests and the needs and interests of Armenians living in Nagorno-Karabakh as well, right? Right. Well, you know, unless uh, the goal is to have them all leave. But again, that is not going to be a good look. Um, and it's going to leave very nasty feelings if that's what happens. Well, yeah, thanks so much for joining us again. You're going to Ukraine in a few days. So maybe we'll try to touch base with you while you're there. But Olya, thanks so much for coming on again today. Thank you for having me again. And so now we're going to head to New York and the opening of the 77th session of the UN General Assembly, which takes place next week. And I'm delighted to welcome back onto the podcast Richard Gowan, Crisis Group's UN Director, one of the world's foremost experts on the world body, on multilateral diplomacy more broadly. Richard, thanks so much for joining. Uh, thank you very much. It's great to be back on the podcast. So, Richard, we'll talk a bit about the health of the UN overall particularly in the shadow of the war in Ukraine. But maybe we could start with a question on what you're going to be watching this week as world leaders descend on Turtle Bay. Obviously, Ukraine's counteroffensive is going to be foremost in at least some people's minds. But any speeches that we should be looking out for? Well, I mean, as so often in 2022, there's going to be a focus on one man, and that man is President Zelensky of Ukraine. It's still not clear 
whether he might actually come to New York. That is still a possibility. But if he doesn't come in person, he will probably speak to the General Assembly by video. He's going to get special permission to do that. Um, other leaders are not allowed to do video speeches this year. And this is an important test for Zelensky. Clearly, other Western leaders and diplomats will applaud him and support him. But a lot of African, Latin American and Asian UN members are suffering quite badly from Ukraine fatigue now, are quite sceptical about the need to keep on focusing on this war at the UN. And it will be interesting to see if some of those non-Western leaders respond positively to Zelensky's speech or whether there's a certain distancing from him. Is there a sort of tone or, or messaging that, that Zelensky can strike that would resonate more with some of those audiences? I think that, assuming he does speak either in person or virtually, it will be important for Zelensky not only to talk about Ukraine suffering, but also to emphasise that he understands the concerns of especially African leaders about the impact of the war on global food prices and on global energy prices. And it's worth saying that, zooming out a bit, it's clear there are going to be two main themes at this General Assembly. Uh, one is Ukraine itself, and the other is this year's global food price shocks. Uh, there are going to be a lot of events organised by the US, the European Union and others uh, on food security issues. And the reason that uh, Ukraine's friends are actually focusing very hard on food is precisely because they see this as an opportunity uh, not only to challenge Russia, but also to reassure uh, non-Western countries that their concerns are being taken seriously. And any, any sign at all that those efforts are resonating? It's too early to say. I think that there was one interesting development, which is that the US and European Union were planning separate events on food security. They have combined those events and they've also brought in the African Union as a co-host. So actually that is uh, quite a positive development that you have the US and Europeans sort of partnering with the African Union on, on food security issues. But, you know, inevitably, it's going to be a difficult dialogue. I think a lot of European officials and leaders feel that they're already offering a lot of aid to uh, countries uh, facing economic challenges. But I think that a lot of leaders from the developing world will still be arguing it's not enough. And, you know, the hangover of previous tensions over the rollout of COVID vaccines, uh, the hangover of uh, tensions over Western countries not coming forward with um, financing for climate adaptation, which was a big issue at last year's General Assembly. You know, those issues will play into the mix too. Uh, there will be, I think, a lot of voices from the global south you know, arguing that they need a fairer deal on all these issues. And Richard, if you think of the leader's speeches in the assembly itself, so US President Joe Biden is going to be there. I mean, I think he's juggling his attendance at the Queen's funeral with his participation at the General Assembly, but he'll certainly be there. Other world leaders, Emmanuel Macron, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, both of whom quite engaged on Ukraine. Others from different parts of the world, of course, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, many African leaders. How much are Ukraine and the food crisis going to feature in their speeches? I think that you know, Biden, for example, will clearly use this as an opportunity to really make his case against Russia. 
last last year it was interesting biden actually avoided challenging china and russia very explicitly at the general assembly uh, this year uh, he's not under the same constraints i think that he will uh you know he he will really be very frank and of course you know biden has a, an advantage he's playing on his home turf uh, Vladimir Putin is not coming to New York. Uh, Xi Jinping is not coming to New York. Um, that's usual. Neither the Russian or Chinese presidents uh, typically come to the General Assembly. And so this is one space where the US president really does still stand as primus inter pares. It will be li- interesting to listen to Macron and Erdogan because, of course, they are the two leaders who have probably done most to try and keep diplomatic channels with Moscow alive during the uh, the war on Ukraine. And I imagine that a lot of diplomats will be listening very closely to, to any hints, uh, especially from Erdogan, about um, any chances of, a, of an opening for conflict resolution with, with Moscow, although I, I think the prospects do seem pretty gloomy. So could we then sort of back up a little bit, Richard? I mean, in, in some ways, the world leaders are gathering after you know, what have been really by any measure a pretty rough few months for the UN for multilateral diplomacy, obviously overshadowed by the near collapse of relations between Russia and, and Western powers coming on top of sort of years of growing friction and animosity among the permanent five, the big powers on the Security Council. How would you sort of rate the way that the council itself has responded to Ukraine? I think the best summary is that it could be worse. Uh, obviously, the Ukraine war has dominated Security Council diplomacy this year, and there has just been a very high level of toxicity in in the council. Relations between the Russians and the US and the UK in particular are poisonous. What is interesting, though, is that while inevitably the council has not been able to act over Ukraine because of Russia's veto, uh, that poison has not completely paralysed the institution. And actually, the uh, the council has continued to conduct routine business, passing resolutions on what the UN should be doing in places like Afghanistan um, and, and Libya, in a very bad-tempered way, but, but nonetheless, you know, delivering on a minimum level of cooperation over those other crises. And that's because both sides have made conscious efforts to not let that happen? Both sides have an interest in in not letting council business collapse? I think everyone has made a conscious decision that they need to continue cooperation on places like Afghanistan. And I think for the Russians, there's actually still more diplomatic advantage to be gained by staying engaged in the Security Council. By working through the Council and continuing to negotiate on issues like getting aid to rebel-held parts of Syria um, through the UN, the Russians do maintain a bit of leverage over the West. Um, If they were simply to halt diplomacy, they they would lose the leverage they get through continuing to negotiate in the Council. And I think, you know, the US and the UK have gritted their teeth and concluded that on problems like holding Afghanistan together, it is still necessary to uh, have the UN working. France in particular has, I think, 
behind the scenes been very keen to keep diplomacy alive. The French have really been telling their allies in New York that they want to avoid forcing Russia into unnecessary vetoes. And the Chinese have played an interesting role, uh, quietly working behind the scenes, uh, sometimes leaning on the Russians, sort of urging them not to do anything too destructive. Uh, you know, it does seem that the Chinese want to keep this channel open too. You know, especially in the early months of the war, you heard a lot of calls uh, from from Ukraine, but also uh, from uh, hawkish politicians in Washington to expel uh, Russia from the Security Council or expel Russia from the UN. Now, actually, in procedural terms, this was all pretty nonsensical, but uh, behind the scenes, US and UK diplomats were making it very clear that they didn't want to get into that territory, um, that ultimately they do see the Security Council as having value as a negotiating space of the last resort with with the Russians. And I, I think this is, you know, this is an important function of the Security Council that we sometimes forget. It, it is a channel that can keep functioning, even at a time where more generally, Western capitals are cutting off uh, diplomacy with Moscow. And that is one of the Council's most important roles, you know, perhaps actually its most important role of all in international politics. On Ukraine itself, the council has been more a venue for posturing the two sides confronting one another uh, than it has for sort of a serious effort to end the war. And, and to some degree, of course, we shouldn't expect much from the council when a major power, a permanent member is directly involved in a war. But the degree of confrontation in the chamber has been particularly high with Ukraine. Yeah, I mean... That is actually probably the council's second most important function, which is to provide a a stage um, for diplomatic dramas. And, you know, from the first, the Ukrainians themselves and the US and other supporters of, of Ukraine, you know, understood that that was what they were going to have to use the council for. There was never any real prospect that the council could play a more substantive role in uh, in dealing with the war. Um, but you know, the, the Ukrainians themselves have been very effective in using this as a, as a theatre, as a place to come and confront the Russians. It, it's one place where the Ukrainian ambassador is able to sit um, as an invited guest of the Security Council across the table from the Russian ambassador and challenge him face to face. And Richard, um, just before we move to other parts of the UN, how does the sort of confrontation over Ukraine between uh, Ukraine itself, its Western supporters on one hand, Russia on the other? I mean, how do other members of the council, particularly some of the elected members, I mean, how do they view the amount of time that's been spent doing that rather than other Security Council business? I think that for the non-Western elected members of the council, this has been quite a dispiriting experience. I, I think they worry that a lot of time has been devoted to Ukraine with very little substantive effect, uh, and that time would have been better used talking about the problems that they face in their own regions. Um, back in June, I think, um, uh, Comfortero, our, our president, was here in New York, and we had a meeting with one of the non-Western Security Council ambassadors, and he said, you know, the UN can talk about Ukraine all it likes, but actually it's got a lot more potential leverage in somewhere like Mali. Um, and I should say, by the way, this, this wasn't one of the African members. And 
this ambassador's view was simply we need to start talking more about some of these other other crises which are really challenging the operational credibility of UN peacekeepers or the operational credibility of UN humanitarian workers but are getting lost in uh, in all the sound and fury of, over Ukraine and actually you know just minutes before we started this conversation uh, crisis group published our annual 10 challenges for the UN in the year ahead and we very deliberately didn't put Ukraine at number one. I mean, Ukraine is there. It's, it's very prominent in the publication. But we put the situations in Mali, in Afghanistan, and in Yemen as the first three challenges, exactly because we wanted to draw some attention back to crises and opportunities for the UN, which seem to be getting lost um, in the sort of present moment of global disorder. So that's the Security Council. But of course, there's also been the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, and the role that he's played. Over recent months, he sort of stepped into this quite a valuable role. Yes. I mean, I would not have expected to say this if we had been talking in March or April, but Guterres has, as far as is possible, had quite a good war. Uh, he he was taken by surprise. Um, I think it is fairly common knowledge that he just didn't believe Russia was going to go through with its military threats. And in March and April, he did just seem to be a bit lost. And I think there was a lot of concern, uh, verging on panic, frankly, in UN headquarters that the organisation was um, being completely marginalised over, over this conflict. But he did get to Moscow, he did get to Kiev, and he has sort of found a niche, um, not as someone who pretends that he can mediate a solution to the conflict, but as someone who is able to get limited concessions out of Moscow on certain humanitarian issues and on steps to mitigate the effects of the conflict. So yeah, the first of those was the evacuation of civilians from Azovstal in Mariupol, and then the second was the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which Guterres hashed out with uh, Erdogan from, from Turkey. And, you know, he is one of the very few statesmen who over half a year of war has been able to get even small concessions from Moscow. So I think that is a uh, a real success. But as Guterres himself would, would admit, that, that doesn't mean that he has an answer to the conflict as a whole. Moscow will work with the UN when it sees that it has a concrete interest in doing so, um, as over the grain deal. Um, that doesn't mean that it wants uh, the Secretary General to come up with a peace plan. And, you know, we should also note that Putin, I think last week, um, started to grumble about the implementation of the grain deal, arguing that not enough grain was going to developing countries. I mean, none of this diplomacy is is guaranteed to keep on succeeding, especially as potentially we enter another phase of the war, the Russians could renege on some of their previous commitments or could complicate the grain deal. And the General Assembly you know, initially was quite involved in the war. You had these two big votes uh, with big majorities in the General Assembly signing up to some quite strong language condemning Russia's renewed invasion of Ukraine. Um, but that uh, seems to have died off a bit. I mean, the, the General Assembly seems no longer the venue that Western diplomats that Ukraine are looking to for signals of support. I think the General Assembly did its job in March. Uh, you know, 141 of the UN's 
193 members signed on to a resolution condemning Russia's aggression. That was uh, the result of a, a really big diplomatic push by the US and EU on behalf of the Ukrainians. Uh, you know, the General Assembly ultimately is not usually um, so an operational arm of the UN in the way that the Security Council is. It's a, a space for statements of political principle. And a very considerable majority of Assembly members stood up and did criticise Russia. But as early as March and April, diplomats in the General Assembly were starting to feel nervous about criticising Russia too often. Uh, you know, a lot of countries, a lot of non-Western countries do have security relationships with Moscow or economic relationships with Moscow that they, they didn't want to trash for the sake of token votes at the UN. And so from the late spring onwards, the US and Europeans have become much more wary of, of tabling uh, further resolutions in the General Assembly criticising Russia. I think that in October, we will probably see one General Assembly resolution um, setting, uh, setting up or at least recommending the creation of a damages register for Ukraine, uh, which will be a mechanism to track the damage that Russia's war has inflicted on the Ukrainians. But beyond that, I think the Ukrainian mission in New York would, would love to be putting down a resolution in the General Assembly every week, uh, criticizing Moscow. But most of its friends uh, are urging a more cautious approach because they think that the level of support uh, will be a lot lower than back in March. So let's go back then to some of the other challenges that the UN is facing that to some degree, have slipped off the radar thanks to Ukraine, and some of which, you know, as you say, we, we wrote about in our note ahead of the General Assembly next week. Maybe let's start with um, UN peacekeeping, a core function of the UN, of the Security Council, sending in blue helmets nominally to help with post-conflict transitions, support peace deals, but in reality now often struggling in areas where rebels, militants are still fighting. We highlighted two missions in particular, uh, MINUSMA, the mission in Mali, and, and MONUSCO, the one in the Democratic Republic of Congo, that are really facing some pretty grave challenges. Do you want to say a word or two about those? I mean, I think this is definitely one of the, the stories that Ukraine has obscured, which is that we are facing a pretty broad crisis of UN peacekeeping now. When you have two of the UN's largest missions in in Mali and the DRC really struggling, it does raise some very hard questions about the value of, of Blue Helmet operations. I mean, the reasons they're struggling are, are quite distinct. Um, but I, I do, you know, I do sense that these crises um, are contributing to a broader uh, concern among Security Council members um, about uh, the sustainability of, of Blue Helmet operations now. Uh, in, in the case of Mali, the fundamental challenge is uh, really maintaining some sort of working relationship with uh, the Malian authorities, which are in increasingly disenchanted with the UN. The government has said quite bluntly that it is going to refuse to cooperate with the UN on human rights monitoring and other key parts of the uh, the operations mandate. We think and we've argued that it's it's necessary to have a, a pretty tough conversation with Bamako over the next year about whether or not the government really wants the peacekeepers to stay. 
now, if the peacekeepers were to leave, it would actually um, have some pretty negative effects uh, on on the government security situation. The, the mission does provide actually more logistical support and other support to um, to, to Mali than is, is generally recognised. And Richard, as you said, I mean, MINUSMA offers the government some support. But how much would Malians in areas that the mission, I mean, the mission isn't across the whole country, it's in, it's in the north and, and parts of the centre, how much would Malians themselves miss the mission were it to leave? Um, I mean, it's, it's hard to assess that, and, and that's something that I think Crisis Group is going to be looking at more. In some areas, uh, the peacekeepers really are solely focused on defending themselves from jihadist attacks. And it's it's hard um, for UN officials, UN human rights workers and others to even get out into the field securely in, in some areas. So, you know, th- this, is a, this is a mission that is, you know, I think struggling to carry out its protection of civilians mandate anyway. But um, if it were to go, that would expand the security vacuum and it would probably, you know, precipitate further insurgent advances and insurgent attacks. So, you know, it would still have negative consequences. In, in the DRC, um, the relationship between the mission and the, the population in the east of the country is is now a fundamental problem. Um, many, uh, many Congolese in the east, uh, you know, just are completely disillusioned with what they see as the UN's failure to protect them uh, from rebel groups like M23 and others. And that has led to uh, sometimes violent protests targeting UN bases. Um, you know, so, so in the Congolese case, the, the real challenge is trying to rebuild some sort of public trust in in the mission. But it's very difficult to do that because the public just don't don't believe that the UN peacekeepers are actually keeping them safe in many cases. Yeah. The- Contexts are very different, of course, but there are common themes, right? And I mean, some of these common themes aren't, they're not new. I mean, maybe they're getting more acute, but but you must have covered this ground in meetings many years ago, relations with host governments, particularly after the mission has been there for a while, uh, the dashed expectations of sort of people in areas where peacekeepers operate, uh, sort of local hostility, very ambitious mandates from the Security Council, the sort of lack of focus of missions, and then sort of particularly difficult, the fact that UN peacekeepers, for, for, for the most part, and obviously notwithstanding the enormous bravery of, of, of many of them, um, but for the most part, Blue Helmets really struggle against a, a latest generation of armed groups and militants, I mean, especially Islamists. Now, maybe the sort of presence of the Russian security contractor, so the Wagner Group, I mean, that's that's new, operating together with, what, Malian security forces and also uh, a big presence in the Central African Republic alongside peacekeepers, so that's a sort of new and challenging twist. But for the most part, these debates and challenges have been around for, 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 for some time, right? I mean, do you sense that that now they might lead to, to something different, to sort of more significant changes in the way the Security Council and the way people conceive of peacekeeping? I mean, I think something that is changing is that some of the governments we're talking about, as they become disenchanted with the UN, are looking to alternative security providers. So for Mali, that's Wagner. Um, For uh, the government of the uh, DRC, uh, it's the neighbours. So this year, um, the Congolese invited Uganda to send troops across the border to fight insurgents. Insurgents that the UN was already meant to be trying to deal with, 
Kinshasa, as we understand it, gave the UN at most a few days' notice that it had done this deal with Uganda. I think this is part of a trend. We've also seen it in the Central African Republic, where the government has also brought in Wagner, mm. which is that uh, you know a lot of a lot of leaders um, who don't feel that the the UN is giving them the sort of security uh, support they want are now looking for alternatives, and um, you know that very much compromises the ability of UN peacekeepers to do their jobs um, if they're sort of operating in areas with other um, other forces that are more brutal um, typically and, and less focused on sort of norms of you know, norms of peacekeeping and so I think this will I think this will start to force a debate because um, the the you know the the, the, fu- the fundamental question is do do these host states want to keep the UN there? Can the UN credibly maintain a security presence, um, or uh, should you know should other actors be allowed to um, take the lead? Uh, in the Congolese case, there's now um, talk of setting up an East African uh, intervention force in in the east of the country uh, to deal with insurgents um, in a more aggressive way than the UN has done. Uh, we at Crisis Group are very sceptical um, that it's uh, a credible proposal. But nonetheless, when you have these alternatives being put on the table, I think that forces some hard debates about the residual role of the Blue Helmets. And on one hand, it's quite hard to imagine the, the, the UN uh, and the Security Council. I mean, the Secretary General also himself is generally thought not to be a big fan of these large peacekeeping missions. On one hand, it's quite hard to imagine the Council deploying sort of a big peacekeeping mission now but at the same time what are the alternatives i mean sometimes a crisis does need some form of international force right the problem is is that uh the un is it's slow moving it takes six months to set up a uh, a peace operation the un isn't designed to fight insurgents but actually it does some of the basics of operational deployment um, better than most alternatives. I mean, it can get 15,000 troops in the field. It can sustain 15,000 troops in the field, you know, in pretty difficult conditions, such as the Eastern Eastern Congo, in a way that very few other actors can. And, you know, this relates to another debate that we're seeing um, bubbling up uh, in New York. Uh, again, not a new debate, but one that is coming back to life, which is maybe the, the UN should stop deploying its own forces, but should... Um, start paying the African Union to deploy more um, peace enforcement operations. Um, this is something which has been discussed for many years, but uh, a number of the African members of the Security Council um, want to reinvigorate this debate now because there has been talk of, firstly, an African mission in the Eastern Congo, and secondly, of an African Union-flagged uh, counterterrorism mission in the Sahel. I think we, we do worry about a lot of aspects of those proposals, but um, the African Union is fully aware that it can't sustain operations on those, those scale without um, much more reliable funding and, and logistics. And so I think one big strategic question for the Security Council now is, does it continue to invest in Blue Helmet operations, or does it say, from here on out, um, in Africa, we'll be following the Somalia model of the UN providing um, backup and resources to regionally led missions.
So that's the Blue Helmets, that's peacekeeping. Now, Richard, another big role that UN missions, I mean, UN envoys play is this sort of peacemaking mediation role, uh, particularly over recent years in the Middle East. So what you've got the UN envoy in, in Yemen, where a truce is, you know, for now holding. In principle, you've got an envoy in Libya, although things looking more difficult there. I mean, we talked about both of those on the podcast uh, last season. I mean, how, how would you reflect on efforts by the UN in those places and sort of whether they've been impacted by the Ukraine war? Well, I think one of the very few good news stories for the UN in the last, uh, last year has been around Yemen, where... Hans Grunberg, the UN Special Envoy, has been able to forge a truce, um, although an imperfect truce, um, between uh, the Houthis and their rivals. And I mean that that is a notable success for for UN mediation in a case where you know the UN had been trying and failing to get some sort of end to hostilities for for a long time. I, I should say that. Um, our analysis reflected in our general assembly briefing is that it's a it's a very fragile truce um the uh the truce agreement was meant to sort of set the stage for a series of confidence building measures uh between the different sides in yemen uh there's been slow progress on 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 those measures uh it's possible that the truce may um may implode uh, but nonetheless, the fact that the UN was able to get it at all uh, was a reminder that, you know, the organization's mediation can, uh, in the right circumstances, get results. Libya, I'm afraid, has been rather the reverse. Um, in 2020, 2021, um, the UN actually uh, made surprising progress in terms of getting uh, a ceasefire and uh, steps towards a political settlement in Libya. But that has drifted very badly over the last year. And unfortunately, UN politics have contributed to the drift because the uh, Security Council um, took, I think, around 10 months uh, to agree on a new envoy to uh, lead the UN assistance mission in Libya. And in the absence of a envoy with full backing from the Security Council, it's pretty clear that all the Libyan parties started to take um, uh, the, the UN rather less seriously than they had in the past. So, I mean, that is a good example of how the general level of tension um, tied to Ukraine is complicating the day-to-day -day work of uh, the United Nations elsewhere. Another of the areas that we're worried about is is Afghanistan uh, now Taliban controlled, and this this has posed some real real challenges for the UN. I mean, the mission uh, initially set up to you know to, to work with a with a government uh, that was supported largely by by outside powers now finds itself trying to manage a desperate humanitarian situation alongside a Taliban government that is, for all intents and purposes, an international pariah. Uh, some of its members sanctioned and non-humanitarian aid for the moment cut off. Do you want to say something about that challenge? Well, I think Afghanistan is actually a fascinating example of where the UN retains value and retains value for all the permanent members of the Security Council. Because after the US withdrawal, uh, you know, really the only player that can stay in Kabul and can parlay with the Taliban 
has turned out to be the UN. And so uh, the UN has actually taken a much more central role, I think, in dealing with Afghanistan than it ever did in the period between 2001 and 2021. You have UN agencies such as UNICEF continuing to work in Afghanistan, and really they are holding together um, the country in in many ways. Um, Now, the challenge for the UN is how does it maintain working relations uh, with the Taliban? And at the start of this year, the Security Council um, did give uh, the UN assistance mission in uh, Afghanistan a de facto mandate to to stay there and um, collaborate with the Taliban. But uh, what we're hearing from our analysts is that um, the Taliban would like to see uh, the UN channeling more economic assistance um, uh, into the country. Uh, And and that relationship is very difficult. Nonetheless, it is still basically the only option um, for uh, channeling international support to the country. And I think that is a good example of, of... the UN's, you know, value in a uh, increasingly strained international environment. I mean, how much, Richard, do you think that this is, you know, in some ways as the space for UN politics or political engagement by the UN, as the space for that shrinks, if you think of other crises as well, whether that's Ethiopia or, or Myanmar, you know, as political space shrinks, how much is, is the UN going to be more band-aid than cure in some ways? I mean, how much is it going to be focused on just getting in humanitarian aid, just staving off the worst. Is there a danger in that for the UN? I mean, I think this is definitely an overall trend, which is that the UN finds itself being marginalised in political discussions in many countries. It sees its peacekeeping operations running into major problems, as we've discussed. Uh, But it is still there as a humanitarian actor. And that is true um, in Afghanistan, it's true in Ethiopia, it's even true in, in Ukraine, where the UN has over a thousand people working on uh, on humanitarian issues um, in, in the country. And I think that to some extent, Antonio Guterres, as Secretary General, has sort of embraced uh, this direction. He's a former High Commissioner for Refugees, he understands humanitarian diplomacy instinctively, and I, I think that he feels that in many situations, the best the organization can do is to keep channeling aid um, to, to those who need it most. Uh, again, this has been a topic of considerable political debate this year over Syria, because um, there was quite a controversy over um, the UN's continuing work um, getting aid to uh, Idlib, the rebel-held area in, in northwest Syria, in the Security Council this summer. But nonetheless, that you know, that is the UN's last real contribution in, in Syria. Now it's it's um, the aid piece. I, I would say that we shouldn't underestimate the value of this sort of conflict mitigation uh, work um, through humanitarian means. I mean, firstly, there's a moral case for it, but secondly, if you didn't have the UN offering humanitarian assistance in places like uh, northwest Syria and Afghanistan. Um, you would probably see a worsening of uh, the crises in those places. You would see more refugee flows. You would see more disorder. So these efforts do have value. That said, some UN officials would say that in a case like Ethiopia, um, the Secretary General, especially last year, focused too much 
on quiet diplomacy around humanitarian issues and didn't uh, really engage sufficiently um, firmly on uh, efforts to end the war between Addis and Tigray um, because he was so concerned about humanitarian matters. Um, so yes, there, there is a cost um, uh, to uh, this, this sort of approach. Richard, I'd be remiss to uh, end the episode without asking you about your favourite topic, which is that well, UN reform more broadly, but UN Security Council reform in particular. As you mentioned earlier, there was a sort of renewed, reinvigorated appetite for sort of looking at the Security Council membership, its working methods, UN reform more broadly, provoked by the, the Ukraine war, but Russia's permanency on the council in light of what it was doing in Ukraine. Are changes to the to, to the council likely? I mean, how do you rate the the prospects for for reform? I mean, look, I've, I prior to working with Crisis Group, I worked on Security Council reform uh, on and off for some years, and that is definitely part of my life that I would like back because it's an extremely um, frustrating uh, line of work. But it is it is true to say that uh, just as the Iraq War in two thousand and three sparked a lot of talk about the need for Security Council reform, uh, we're seeing a very similar dynamic now uh, with um, not only NGOs and academics, but also ambassadors in New York saying that they, they do feel that this crisis has shown that we do urgently need some sort of changes to the council. Um, there was a, a very small step in that direction, but a positive step in the spring when the General Assembly uh, created a new mechanism um, by which uh, whenever a country casts a veto in the Security Council, um, it now is expected to go and explain its decision to the full General Assembly within 10 days. And the General Assembly uh, will then debate on how to respond. I mean, that was a small step, but it, it was at least a pretty clear message after Russia used its veto over Ukraine um, at the start of the war that um you know the, the UN membership as a whole sort of felt um felt it was it was sort of necessary to hold the security council a bit more to account that the veto wasn't entirely cost free in other words not that the general assembly can actually overturn the veto there's a reputational cost um to to using the veto now the question of whether more fundamental council reforms is possible uh, r remains very doubtful but it it is worth noting that Linda Thomas Greenfield the US ambassador um, made a speech in which she said the, the Biden administration uh, would like to see uh, a discussion of Security Council reform. Uh, we expect um, President Biden to say something similar when he addresses the General Assembly next week. And it does seem that while I don't think the US has a very clear menu of the reforms that it would want to the Security Council, Washington has recognised that it needs to respond to this overall sense of international concern about the state of the institution. So I think, yeah, we're going to see a uh, probably a period of one or two years of uh, more intense debate about whether it is possible to rewrite the rules of the veto or maybe add new members to the Security Council um, you know, so that it better reflects current uh, international power dynamics. Uh, what I would say, again, based on bitter experience, and maybe I'm too <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm too pessimistic, is that the fact that people are talking about Security Council reform does not mean that there will be reform. 
And at the end of the day, to get any change to the UN Charter, you need to have um, all five permanent members ratifying those changes. So at the end of the line, Russia and China hold a veto over the entire process. Ironically, one of the reasons that the US may be starting to talk about its own interest in, in UN reform is precisely uh, to put China and Russia in a corner. Because the US knows that China and Russia um, are not really going to support any serious reform discussions. And so what the Biden administration may be hoping to do is um, not only tell the world that it feels the UN needs to change, but also highlight the fact that the real obstacles are um, are its geopolitical rivals, um, China and Russia. And that's something it can use to win diplomatic points um, at the UN, even if it doesn't actually lead to any real reforms at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. And just, I mean, we should probably be clear, it's not that reform of the institution wouldn't be a good thing. I mean, changing the representation on it, as you say, changing some of the veto, some of the working procedures, you know, these would be good things to do in principle if you could reach agreement on them. It's more the challenge, particularly in a moment of very fraught geopolitics. It's more the challenge of getting there than than whether it's a a good thing to do or not. There There are multiple, multiple different uh, disputes and tensions over council reform. So, for example, you know, India and um, Germany want permanent seats on the council, but actually a lot of European countries like Italy and Asian countries like Pakistan are, are very opposed to the idea that Berlin and Delhi could become permanent members. Or is it Brazil, Mexico or Argentina or South Africa, Nigeria or Ethiopia? Exactly. Um until until you you know well before you get to the question of whether China and Russia would approve any reforms, you need to have an extremely complex debate involving all the UN's members about what revision uh, what vision of reform they could settle on. And it's not clear that there is a vision that would really command um, a a credible majority support in the General Assembly. So, Richard, maybe then to end, I mean, leaving aside the question of reform, we're obviously now in a time that's um, that's difficult for the UN, very different to the world of two or three decades ago. You know, it's a world marked not only by the, the sort of fraught geopolitics that you talked about, but also by increasing nationalism. I mean, Biden's election, Macron's re-election maybe offered some respite, but the fundamentals, the sort of things underpinning populism, still seem pretty strong and may, of course, get worse with the commodities crisis, with the price hikes, sort of worsening economic conditions. So more populism, more distrust to multilateral institutions, multilateral diplomacy. Against this sort of backdrop, what do you think we should hope for from the UN? I mean, should the UN supporters scale up their ambition, given the gravity of the challenge? Or the opposite? I mean, thinking back to the UN's role during the Cold War, for example, maybe that's setting the bar too low, but should we scale down ambitions given the sort of very harsh geopolitical realities? What can we and what sort of should we reasonably expect from the UN? I think firstly, we should say that we're not back in Cold War conditions. There were periods in the Cold War when the Security Council didn't meet for months at a time. Uh, There was one year, I think it was 1959, when the Security Council passed a single resolution in an entire year. You know, this year, despite all the tensions over Ukraine, the council has kept on passing resolutions. I think it's passed about 30 resolutions um, since the 24th of February, roughly the same as last year. I mean, by, by Cold War standards, it remains remarkably active. And I don't think we should underestimate 
the importance of what we talked about earlier in the conversation, which is despite all their differences, the main powers at the UN have made some sort of tacit agreement over the last six months to keep the organization going, which um, is not something, as we said, that was absolutely guaranteed in February. So it seems to me that what we have seen over the course of this year is that even in a period of significantly heightened international competition, uh, there is still a role for the UN, as I say, as a venue for um, mitigating some of the, the, the world's problems. And I think we should take some comfort, actually, from the fact that the UN is continuing to play this function as a diplomatic venue of the last resort um, in these very, very difficult times. So, you know, while there is a lot of talk about reform, I personally don't invest a lot of optimism that we're going to come out of this crisis with a much stronger UN or with a fundamentally altered and improved UN. But I think uh, the organisation does still seem to be set to muddle through. And it is still an organisation which is keeping people alive in the Horn of Africa um, and you know, providing some basic services to people in Afghanistan. And at the end of the day, those are not small things. Richard, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Ukraine, on Nagorno-Karabakh, on the UN and multilateralism more broadly on our website, uh, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Alex Figorski. Thanks to Heiko Schaub, who helps out with production. And of course, thanks again to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in. Please do get in touch, podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also write to me directly, atwood at crisisgroup.org, if you have any questions or suggestions. If you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. Tell your friends and colleagues about us. And I very much hope you'll join us again next week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.